You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we're joined today by John Prados, who is a senior fellow at the National Security Archive. He focuses on national security affairs, including foreign affairs, intelligence, and military subjects. He also heads the Archive's intelligence documentation and Vietnam projects. He holds a PhD in political science, focused on international relations, from Columbia University, and is the author of more than 20 books in all, in fact, 29, along with many articles and papers. His research centers on subjects including the National Security Council, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Vietnam War, an analysis of international relations plus diplomatic and military history in a general sense. His books include The Family Jewels, The CIA's Secrecy and Presidential Power, Safe for Democracy, The Secret Wars of the CIA, Vietnam, The History of an Unwinnable War, and William Colby and the CIA, The Secret Wars of a Controversial Spymaster. Among his books, Unwinnable War, Keepers of the Keys, which is on the National Security Council, and Combined Fleet Decoded on Intelligence in the Pacific and World War II were each nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. His new book, Storm Over Leyte, The Philippine Invasion and the Destruction of the Japanese Navy, has just come out, in fact, today, I believe, or very soon. Uh, thank you, John, for taking the time to come talk to us at the International Spy Museum. It's my pleasure. So Leyte Gulf may actually be one of the most significant battles in history that many people outside of the history buffs don't know a whole lot about, and it's arguably the greatest naval battle in history. That's what, absolutely true. What drew you to this other than that? Like, there's been a lot of books written about Leyte Golf and a lot of books written about the American island hopping campaign in the Pacific. What makes this book different? Why did you feel you needed another book on this battle? Well, aside from the fact that Leyte has not been addressed in a while, the truth is that uh, you can't find anywhere a book that simultaneously covers the intelligence buildup to the Battle of Leyte and the sort of political uh, war inside a war that was uh, raging on the American side and uh, to a considerable degree the Japanese are ignored in our accounts of the Battle of Leyte Gulf. That is to say there's a lot of attention given to 
the Japanese side of the battle, but people don't integrate uh, what they know, what we are learning about the Japanese side, into a really authentic narrative. And that was the point here. Um, this book starts off with uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt visiting Pearl Harbor, and during that visit, he actually goes to, to see the codebreakers of the Fleet Radio Unit Pacific and the Intel Pooks of the uh, Joint Intelligence Center Pacific Ocean Area. And you know, uh, if you look at Winston Churchill and Bletchley Park, I don't think there's a record of Churchill ever visiting Bletchley Park. But Roosevelt visits his codebreakers in Pearl Harbor. And that's an interesting place to start, and we take the story from there. This is a time in the war where U.S. codebreakers were making a major difference in the war. You talk about the Marianas Battle, where submarines were able to ravage the escort force of the Japanese because of code breaking, because they knew exactly where they were going to be. How much difference does this make at this point? Well, see, there's a, an example of exactly what I was talking about, because between the Philippine Sea Battle and the Leyte Gulf Battle, there is a transformation in Japanese naval planning and strategy. So, where the Japanese had spent the entire war uh, assigning their submarines to what they called patrol lines, for the Philippine battle, they changed their schema and they began to assign their submarines to patrol areas, quite similar, actually, to what the Americans and the Australians and Brits were doing with their submarine forces. So uh, in one aspect after another, the Japanese planned systematically for this new battle. And that's one of the things that's missing from the given history mm -hmm. that we have of Leyte Gulf. For instance, another instance, the Japanese systematically reinforced the flak and anti-aircraft capabilities of their fleet forces. Another one, for the first time, they installed gun-laying radars and practiced uh, radar direction uh, of gunnery for the new battle, uh, and a whole series of things like that. There hasn't actually ever been uh, a, a systematic account of Japanese training and preparations for the Leyte battle, and this book has that. Right. Well, it's very in-depth, and I certainly want to get to some of that, especially the pilot training, I think, is really interesting. How much did we know about this change in Japanese strategy from American intelligence? You know, nothing. And that's one thing about Leyte that took us by surprise. But we knew a very great deal about the Japanese in general. Uh, for example, about the pilot training, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the Japanese, they had their own problem as well because they had gone from possessing uh, a lethal weapon in the form of the Imperial Navy to a weapon that was not able to even land a glove on the American forces. And they were searching pretty desperately for uh, something that would enable them to reverse that trend. Uh, and they came to it right at Leyte with the concept of suicide operations. Mm -hmm. That's where you see kamikazes for the first time. That's like. right. You talk in the book about, we talked about the Marianas battle also, but the, but the kind of intelligence coup that comes out of that battle. They captured thousands of documents, thousands of prisoners. Because the battle went so fast, the Japanese didn't have time to destroy them. I thought it was really interesting that you talk about, as U.S. learned from the past, they actually had teams ready 
to exploit these documents and try to take advantage of the intelligence from them. Uh, the Marianas campaign was the first time in the war that uh, American captures of Japanese material exceeded what really could be handled on the spot. Those uh, teams that you refer to were actually like doctors doing triage. Right, I love how they you were, explain it that way. Yes, right. exactly. I mean, deciding what needed to be uh, decoded and deciphered immediately. Immediately versus mm-hmm. what could be shipped back to Pearl Harbor. That's right. Right. And what was interesting to me also was that this is a time period, you think about today, right, where everyone's talking about creating fusion centers and talking about kind of bringing together different agencies and different... That's not new, right? You talk about the book that there was that centralization of intelligence. You've already talked about the Joint Intelligence Center, Pacific Ocean Area. This is really an all-source intelligence fusion center during Jit-Poa World War II. was the first fusion center. And in fact, when uh, the uh, U.S. intelligence community moved in the 1990s to uh, create fusion centers, they were really pulling this concept back out of history. They were not actually innovating something new. And it has a very interesting uh, ancestor. This descends from Station Hypo. That's correct. Which is, for those of you, you've heard of it, I promise, it's the one that helped break the codes for the Battle of Midway. Exactly. They also had serious leadership analysis of Japanese commanders that you talk about in the book, where they, they tried to figure out what made these different commanders tick, except the new guy put in charge, they didn't know a whole lot about. Was it Toyota? Toyota. Yeah. No one had heard of him. They hadn't paid attention. Um, I wouldn't say, though, that their leadership analysis was that great. I was actually once discussed this with uh, uh, Max Showers, Admiral Showers, before he passed away. And uh, he was actually telling me that he wished that they did as much leadership analysis as is, as is, is reflected in, for example, Combined Fleet Decoded, mm-hmm. of which this book is kind of a descendant. Right. This is also a point in a war we talked about earlier, we alluded to, where the Japanese were severely lacking in qualified pilots. I think if you look historically at Midway, it wasn't necessarily that we sunk a lot of their ships. It's the amount or the number of qualified veteran pilots that were killed during and this battle. And even more, the ground crews. And the ground crews, right? People, people don't look at the fact that you need people who can fix planes and do all that. And you talk in the book that at this point in the war... The Japanese pilots were only getting about 80 hours of training in the kind of the equivalency of a U.S. pilot before he went to combat. We like 400 hours. That's exactly right. It's really a five to one ratio. But this really ends up being an area of disagreement among American intelligence about how well these pilots are trained. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, not only about how well the pilots are trained, but also about uh, the purposes of given Japanese naval air groups, whether training groups could actually be used for combat Mm -hmm. missions like air defense or not. There was, in fact, a dispute between the the fusion center, Jikpoa, at Pearl Harbor and uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence back in Washington right at this point in 1944 about how do you count the Japanese Air Force and its air groups. And the dispute centered on these training air groups and whether or not they should be included in the order of battle. Now, as it turned out, when Admiral Halsey's Third Fleet launched the big uh, aerial onslaught against Taiwan, uh, sure enough, the Japanese training air groups took to the air to try and help defend against the American attacking aircraft. So they did, in fact, do what the, uh, the Jikpoa guys were saying, not what the ONI guys were saying. 
So it's not surprising that the guys closest to the battle were the ones that had the better numbers. I mean, worse than that, yeah. ONI won that battle, and Jigpoa got out of the aerial order of battle business and began accepting the ONI numbers. Which were wrong. Which were wrong. A lot of times people ask me when I talk to school groups or when I talk to college kids, what areas they should study if they want to go into the intelligence world. And a lot of times I answer languages. And it seems from your book that language officers were really the key to everything in the That's Pacific. That's absolutely right. I mean, the knowledge of cultural nuances. This wasn't just, do you know Japanese? These were the people who had lived in Japan, really focused on the Japanese language, because without them, the codebreakers don't really mean much of anything. The translation is key in the appreciation of the vocabulary and Japanese meanings. Absolutely the key. The deputy chief of the Jikpoa unit uh, opined in retrospect after World War II that uh, if, it, if figuring out what the Japanese were up to had been just up to him and the codebreakers, uh, the Japanese secrets would have been safe. But with the language officers, we were able to figure out what they were up to. And to the point where they started at University of Colorado, started an entire Japanese language school where they put people through harsh, well, not harsh is the wrong word, very intensive training. Yes, intensive training, not just at Boulder, although we called them the Boulder Boys, but there was a, a, a program at Harvard and one at Berkeley in addition to the Boulder program. Is that the, the, the predecessor to like the Monterey language school? Ab or, yes, no. exactly. Great. What was the Z plan? Because that seemed to jump out at me in the book, especially that little... Not deception is the wrong word, but the kind of jumping through hoops that MacArthur and his team did to make sure the Japanese didn't know that we had intercepted this plan. Yes, the Z plan actually was uh, the crystallization of the Japanese uh, sort of discovery or realization that they really had to change their entire procedure if they were going to fight the Americans on any kind of a basis. And what they did was to uh, kind of reorder the universe as a set of areas and plan systematically to fight in each area. And the Z plan actually considerably predates the Leyte battle, but uh, the principles that were enshrined in that plan, which formed the basis for Japanese actions in the, the Marianas Sea Battle, uh, were still the ones that they were using at the time of Leyte Gulf. And there were intelligence officers on Halsey's staff, for example, who were touting the Z plan as uh, what Halsey needed to pay attention to to understand what the Japanese were up to in the battle. And one thing that the Z plan did was to uh, foresee or plan for uh, the use of part of the Japanese fleet as a complete decoy. Right. And that was the Japanese aircraft carriers. And the most controversial thing on the American side about the Battle of Leyte Gulf is that Bill Halsey went rushing to go after the Japanese aircraft carriers, taking him away from the key place where the Japanese battleships were breaking through. And I want to go on from that to make another point mm -hmm. now. On the Japanese side, they have this very uh, highly orchestrated plan coming from the Z plan uh, and intending to 
destroy American invasion shipping. But that idea of destroying the American invasion shipping was a, a, uh, a change from the tradition in the Imperial Navy of considering that Navy forces would seek a decisive battle against enemy naval forces. Right, instead of going head-to-head with That's the strength. right. And when it push came to shove and those battleships actually succeeded in breaking through, they diverted themselves to go after naval shipping instead of the merchant shipping and the invasion shipping. Uh, it comes down to the fact that at Leyte Gulf, both sides made a mistake in their fighting capability, and both sides made the same mistake. I want to get to Halsey in a second, because he seems to be central to this conversation. But keeping on the Z plan, that was interesting that we we steal this thing. We basically are intercept this plan. But MacArthur is very smart in this case, because he realizes that if the Japanese know we have this plan, they'll change it. Exactly. And so they have to kind of make it seem as though we never had it. And almost all, it reminds me a little bit of mincemeat, where they kind of make sure it floats back over to the Japanese. And get yes, it's one of the great spy stories of the Pacific War. That's definitely true. It starts when the Japanese fleet commander is changing bases in the spring of 1944, running away from another carrier attack from the Americans. And uh, he boards a, a flying boat, which uh, uh, heads off for a, a new location south of the Philippines, but the aircraft gets lost in a storm and crashes off uh, uh, one of the Philippine islands. And his chief of staff uh, is carrying this document in his briefcase. And the chief of staff is, is injured in the crash, uh, and the the briefcase, instead of sinking, it floats. And the Filipino fishermen who were related to the resistance uh, rescue them, and they hand the, do the documents over to uh, the resistance commanders. And those are the people who inform MacArthur, a submarine is sent to pick up the documents. The Americans have a, uh, a debate whether they should send the documents back or not. The Japanese, meanwhile, are uh, uh, sort of knocking down villages and burning them out in an attempt to pressure the resistance guys to give back the prisoners and the documents. Eventually, the, the, the resistance forces do just that, but not before the Americans have had the opportunity to photograph the Z-plan. Well, it wasn't even attempted to hide what there's a huge Z written on the front. That's the correct. <laughs> so I thought that was great. Um, let's talk about the battle itself. Talk about Leyte Gulf. There, there's the now the, the Americans outnumber the Japanese dramatically during this battle. But interesting to me, there are two full fleets, but the U.S. decides to split its two fleets. You have this fleet under Admiral Kincaid and the fleet you've talked about under Bill Halsey or Bull Halsey. Why in the world would you split these forces? What what part of the plan said you should split these two massive forces? Because wasn't it up until that point the idea was a, to concentrate force and fight a battle kind of together? Um, I would say that uh, it was a natural progression uh, and also an artifact of the uh, the split in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, theater between the Southwest Pacific forces coming up from Australia that were commanded by MacArthur and the forces coming across the Central Pacific that were commanded by Nimitz from Pearl Harbor. 
and there was um, on the the MacArthur side this Seventh Fleet, which grew from a very small force in 1942 to the point in 1944 where it could mount an invasion. But what it did not have was aerial striking power, and uh, uh, across sea. Uh, fleet logistics. Those things existed under Nimitz's command. Now Nimitz, he had an amphibious force too, but without the, uh, the ground power that MacArthur's forces had. And clearly a Philippine invasion was going to be an operation that required a lot of ground power. Mm. So it was natural that MacArthur should have the role of being the commander of the invasion. It was also natural by this time in the war that uh, fleet logistics forces and carrier striking forces would shift back and forth behind whatever operation was being carried out, whichever area it happened to be in. So uh, this area, the Philippines, was kind of a borderline between Nimitz's right. command and MacArthur's command, and that was the source of some of the confusion on the American side. And I think people don't quite understand the fact that there was more than just MacArthur in the Pacific. The kind of general <laughs> conventional wisdom was Eisenhower in Europe, MacArthur in the Pacific, but Nimitz essentially had this massive naval command that was in charge of the vast majority of the Pacific and certainly the American Navy in that area. That's correct. Halsey gets the study here, both because of his reputation as this, you know, bold, bulldog type, but also because he makes a critical decision during the battle, and we'll talk about that in a second. But on a little bit of background of Halsey, he actually knew intelligence fairly well. That's right. Because he was the naval, naval attaché to Germany during the interwar period. Exactly. So this is somebody that gets at least collection analysis. This is not somebody that just blows off intelligence like others do, but... He ends up getting really lured away in a trap by the Japanese. And can you explain a little what happens there? Well, um, the lesson of World War II up until the time of Leyte, I mean, uh, epitomized, in fact, at Midway, is that the aircraft carrier was the most important warship, the most important type of warship, the kind of uh, basis for naval fighting power. So uh, that's what Admiral Halsey had learned from fighting in the war so far. Indeed, he was the one who in the South Pacific campaign on the, in the Solomons, you know, had at one time had only one aircraft carrier left with which to fight the, the Japanese and had managed by uh, subterfuge and, and uh, dynamism to, uh, to win through despite that. So uh, he was very much imbued with the idea that uh, he should go after the aircraft carriers. Meanwhile, uh, there had been, as we referred to briefly before, this big battle in the Marianas, a big naval battle in the Marianas, where the Americans did not succeed in wiping out the Japanese Navy aircraft carriers, and where uh, the commanding officer of the fleet at that point, Admiral Spruance, was criticized for not pressing home the attack against the Japanese carriers. Letting him escape, basically. That's right. So Halsey was looking at the example of what had been done to Spruance, and he was looking at these Japanese aircraft carriers that they just discovered, and he had a, a governing directive for his operation that instructed him to uh, support the invasion force, but if he had a chance to kill the Japanese carriers, to go ahead and go after them. So he relied on that 
to as his basis for for uh, chasing the Japanese aircraft carriers. What were the repercussions of him going off after the aircraft carriers? It kind of left his invading force uh, a little bit naked and open to attack. Well, there was a, a strait. The Japanese uh, fleet, in order to attack the Americans at all, had to cross from um, the west side of the Philippines to the east. And there are only a few straits that cro- that, uh, in the islands, only a few places where this could be done. One of them was a place called San Bernardino Strait. And uh, Halsey's fleet had been ranged opposite San Bernardino Strait before he went off to chase the Japanese carriers, which took his fleet off to the north mm-hmm. and left that uh, strait open for passage by the Japanese fleet. The Japanese actually expected to have to fight their way past this strait, and they were surprised when there was no opposition, and they just sailed right through. And it, if it wasn't for a bunch of very courageous destroyer captains and others that, that kind of took some beatings, uh, that would have been a, maybe a very different battle. This is one that certainly could have gone either way, as you talk about in the book. Can you explain, like, what... what Halsey being gone left them with kind of with their pants down in many cases. That's absolutely right. The commander of the uh, little jeep aircraft carriers that were became the target for the Japanese battleship, uh, uh, his stance about it was they had us on the ropes. And just a lot of bobbing and weaving and luck kind of gets them through and allows them to And confine. airplanes. Yeah. I mean, going back to the idea of the aircraft carrier as being the... Uh, uh, the decisive weapon, you know, uh, these American planes from the little Jeep carriers, even though, uh, you know, they didn't have the weight of a, of a, a fleet aircraft carrier of Halsey's kinds of, of ships, uh, just by buzzing around the Japanese uh, surface vessels, you know, they confused them, they damaged some of them, they sank a couple, uh, they created enough havoc among the Japanese that the Japanese were thrown into confusion. And the combination of that with the destroyer and destroyer escort captains mm-hmm. was really what held off the Japanese fleet. Let's talk about the impact of this battle. This is really a. People talk about Midway all the time, but Leyte Gulf is one of the most significant battles during World War II. Because really, the Imperial Japanese Navy is no longer an effective force. After That's this exactly right. Until Leyte. Uh, the Japanese Navy is a coherent uh, fighting weapon. After uh, Leyte, the fleet is a set of shards. Peace here and there, you know, uh, different ones fled to different places after the battle. There wasn't a coherent force. Well, they also lose the, if they lose the Philippines, they lose their opportunity to use a logistical trail from from the southern, southeastern Pacific as well. Isn't that true or no? Well, no. This, okay. is, this is actually part of the war within a war that I referred to before. MacArthur held out that possibility to FDR as well as the political notion that the United States had promised the Philippines independence and invading there would uh, crystallize those intentions and those promises that America had made. Um, the U.S. Navy uh, was backing a plan to invade uh, Taiwan. Now, MacArthur dismissed that and said that, well, you know, an invasion of Taiwan would be very difficult and we're fighting for a long time. An invasion of the Philippines will be easy. It will cut off uh, the Japanese and so on and so on. Turns out that, in fact, 
American forces were still fighting in the Philippines on the last day of the war. So that promise that MacArthur had made was not true. And the other promise that it was going to uh, cut off Japan from the southern areas, that promise is also not true. If you look at uh, the standard planning factors that the Joint Chiefs of Staff used for uh, plotting air uh, interdiction ranges, which uh, actually was to the radius of a B-26 bomber, um, you see that uh, a blockade mounted from Taiwan actually blocks the uh, uh, routes from Japan to the south, whereas one mounted from the Philippines leaves the Japanese with the possibility of skirting around right. it along the Asian mainland. I'm not a huge fan of counterfactual history, but it really interests me to think if we had taken Taiwan and then jumped onto mainland China, how different the Cold War may have turned out if this American forces were knee-deep in, in mainland China. This is true. I'm not going to venture a prediction. Yeah, that's, that's, that's why I don't like <laughs> counterfactual history, but just kind of food for thought. We also talked about the fact that, you know, kamikazes pop up for the first time yes. here. A lot of people look at the battles that come later, whether it's Iwo Jima, Okinawa, and how this is the beginning of the kamikaze battle. But Leyte Gulf is really where you see it for the very first time. Leyte Gulf is the origin of the species. Uh, and this goes back to the big air battle over Taiwan. The Japanese had planned to have a major aerial onslaught against the U.S. fleet. One of the places that they made a big error in Leyte Gulf was to decouple that idea from their main plan and actually have an air battle that was independent of the naval surface battle. And the reason that that's so important is because um, if those two things had been coordinated, two different weapons, although unable to uh, uh, integrate with each other, but they could be used independently at the same time, the Japanese aerial onslaught would have monopolized the attention of Halsey's fleet and Kincaid's fleet as well at the crucial moment that the Japanese surface forces were coming within air range of the U.S. fleet on their approach to the Philippines. So uh, the Japanese sustained many, many losses in their effort to just close in mm -hmm. with the American fleet, and some of them would have been uh, prevented if they had done this tactic rather than using up uh, the, f the airplanes over Taiwan. But uh, to complete the point, you know, once they had used up the airplanes, they faced the problem of, with this residual force that they had left, how did they uh, get it to have any impact? And the idea became, oh, well, let's use the planes in a, in a, as suicide bombers. It, is it safe to say that intelligence played a particularly large role in the Leyte Gulf battle? Mainly, we knew almost everything about the Japanese order of battle. How much difference did that make in our eventual victory? Because we talked about, it was we still almost lost the battle. It was very close. How how wrapping things? How much did intelligence play? What role in this battle? Early in the war, I would say that intelligence had a, um, a decreasing importance as the war went on. Early in the war in the South Pacific, intelligence was absolutely crucial. Uh, at Leyte Gulf, 
now once the allies had accumulated a huge uh, material advantage over the Japanese intelligence became less important but it still had its importance the um, intelligence provided the US with key information on the Japanese defenses in Taiwan in the Taiwan air battle it provided key information on the Japanese redeployment of aircraft to concentrate their force in that battle um, and it provided uh, a warning that the Japanese had activated their attack plan now the degree to which American commanders paid attention to this is another issue. At MacArthur's headquarters, there was a fight back and forth about whether the Japanese Navy was going to come out at all. Right. Halsey more or less figured that the Japanese were going to come out, and he was sort of uh, hypersensitive to that happening, which was another thing that contributed to his run after the Japanese aircraft carriers as soon as he saw them. Let me shift focus a little bit to what you do as your day jobs. I think a lot of our listeners will be very interested to know um, how the National Security Archive is able to do what it does, because this is one of the greatest resources for anyone who focuses on U.S. national security. Um, the archive itself gets things declassified. You put stuff online. Talk a little bit about how you get some of this new information in, in general, what the National Security Archive does, because you've unearthed you're yourself, but the archive true. Some of the most interesting new documents over your career. What is the process? Do you do you doggedly just FOIA things until they give up? Is that that doesn't work for me? So can you give us a little insight in how how you you were able to to get some of these new you your twenty nine books? A lot of them are full of things no one's ever seen before. So you can talk through that a little bit. Well, that is what we do. We doggedly uh, apply to get things released. We. Uh, um, well, let me just back up. The National Security Archive is a non-government organization. We're not related to the U.S. government. Uh, we are located on the campus of the George Washington University, but we're not actually part of the George Washington University either. Um, but we, we have our offices there and our archive there. People can come here and uh, uh, use our documents. And we have, in addition to the documents that you're referring to, we also have donations and collections of papers from more than 300 individual people. So there's other resources that the archive has. In any case, uh, there are two major routes to opening up documents. One is the Freedom of Information Act. The other one is called Mandatory Declassification Review. We follow both methods and, and use different ones depending on what we think uh, the situation is with a particular document. We look at the uh, sort of evolving state of knowledge on different subject areas, crises, what have you, uh, when you were doing your bio notes at the beginning, you noted that I ran the, the Vietnam project and the, the CIA project. So I, I pay attention in those areas and I uh, apply for things to get uh, uh, opened up. And similarly, I have uh, colleagues who have different portfolios from Iraq to uh, 
uh, environment to uh, South America. Nuclear weapons. And yeah. Each one of yeah. them, you know, follows those subjects and files those requests, and we keep following them up, and we appeal them when they're denied, and we apply for them again after we failed the first time. So I let me say you know. when you're denied and not if you're denied because it's almost a <laughs> it's standard Unfortunately, procedure. Unfortunately, yeah. that is true. In the U.S. declassification system, it's broken. Do you see that changing at all? I mean, this is the Obama presidency was supposed to be the most transparent. Clearly, that hasn't been the case. But are we moving in that trend? Or, or I know when I was doing the majority of my research for my PhD it was during the Bush administration, and they actually even reclassified things that had been declassified before, particularly in the case of nuclear weapons. Have we at least seen that trend change? Are we moving in the right direction, or do you see that this the war on terror and everything going on has kind of forced a permanent state of having to fight for things to be classified? Well, it's always been a permanent state of fighting to get things declassified. And I admit to regrets, uh, the Obama administration, as you say, was supposed to be this kind of halcyon day for, for government openness, and it hasn't turned out to be that way. He has um, issued uh, authorizing documents that uh, should require the agencies to open up more. But one of the problems with this administration is that the president did not follow through on his initial directives. And that has enabled the agencies to more or less uh, thumb their noses uh, at the, the restrictions that are in their own governing directives. And that's one of the, the biggest problems. Um, I was optimistic at one time that the uh, existence of many, many, many millions of pages of documents, all of which had to be kept in a secure manner, you know, thus generating huge costs. I was optimistic at one time that the huge cost of keeping lots of obsolete secrets secret mm -hmm. uh, would drive them to release old records, and that actually hasn't happened. But it is still... Um, kind of like the 800-pound gorilla in the room. The government is still facing the necessity to protect old secrets, which are completely ridiculous right. in terms of being secret. And ultimately, sooner or later, uh, that has got to give because we just can't afford to pay for that. Well, another level that I've had to deal with is I got something declassified through FOIA, and when I finally got it, it had like four words on it that weren't redacted. And That's so absolutely right. Have you seen the redaction? Because the redaction is usually done by the agencies themselves. So they're being forced to release something. They get the chance to look at it first. Have you seen that becoming less problematic or is that just as bad or maybe even worse now that they're being forced to release things that they don't necessarily want to? I would say it's just as bad as mm -hmm. ever. Um, the government, the executive made a big splash last year about releasing a set of documents that are called the presidential daily briefs. Mm -hmm. They released a set of these things for the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. And if you look at um, the actual documents, uh, you can see that uh, that exact process happening. These documents are 
maybe 50% there. I wouldn't actually want to guess at the percentage of those documents that were actually released. 50% might be high, right. you know? And um, you look at the, the stuff that was released and you look at the status of the document, what you're talking about is uh, a set of documents that isn't really declassified. What it is is... Uh, just kind of opened. Right. And we are at the very dawn of actually opening up those records. Just to make an example, um, my second book was about the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And I was in the 1970s researching documents from the Eisenhower administration of the 1950s. And uh, at that time, of course, uh, Government authorities were considering secrets from the 1950s to be very secret. So many documents that I saw were very heavily redacted, like the ones that you're talking about here, mm -hmm. right? So the PDB documents last year in the had the same relationship to real documents as the Eisenhower documents of the 1970s had with relation to Eisenhower's real documents. Right. Now, by the 1990s, the most recent time that I uh, re-researched those uh, Dien Bien Phu and the Eisenhower administration, those records were pretty much opened up. So this is kind of like the way the process works. Right. There will be more and more requests for them, bit by bit. Uh, um, you know, like a drip thing, you know, more material will come to the public, and eventually the documents will be largely open. I would say that's incredibly problematic for historians, but it does keep us in business because you never know if these redacted documents are redacting the part that contradicts the rest of the document or important information that tells you something that you wouldn't otherwise know. That's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head right there. I often talk uh, to audiences about fractured history, fractured fairy tales. You know, the, the act of releasing documents in this kind of status is what is going to fuel uh, misconceptions in our history. Much better to uh, pick a day, any day, a date, you know, which we have done too. I mean, we've got both these things in our system, um, and release whole documents. Right. Don't, you know, hold back. Was people by nature are going to fill in the dots with their imagination or whatever they think exactly. are going to happen. And then you run into the problem of misinformation or conspiracy theories or everything else. That's exactly right. So I, I, John Prados, uh, his new book is Storm Over Leyte, The Philippine Invasion and the Destruction of the Japanese Navy. I focused a lot on the Second World War in my scholarly pursuits. If you look at my bio, I focus on the Second World War and early Cold War. And this is by far the most in-depth look at this decisive battle of the Pacific Theater of the Second World War. I highly recommend it. Uh, prepare to spend some time working our way through it because it is very, very detailed in all the right ways. John, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the Spy Museum. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, Every Tuesday, we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week.
listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. Now. 